0: This Reformation audio resource is the production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalogue, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at area code 780 450 3730 by fax at area code 780 468 1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton Alberta Canada T6L 3T5 If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalogue. The Rise and Fall of Papacy by Robert Fleming First published in 1701, 1848 edition, as read by Samantha Alosais. To the Right Honourable John, Lord Carmichael, Principal Secretary of State for the Kingdom of Scotland, one of His Majesty's most Honourable Privy privy Council and Chancellor of the College of Glasgow. My Lord, the honour I have in being related to Your Lordship and the happiness I enjoy in being acquainted with You, do not only encourage me to prefix Your Lordship's name to the following discourses, but allow me also to believe You will not take it amiss that I do so. And since You have so lately laid me under new ties to Your Lordship, in designing my promotion to so considerable an office as that of principal of the College of Glasgow, I find myself obliged to lay hold on this first opportunity of declaring to the world the grateful sense I have of so great and undeserved a favor, and the rather, because my circumstances have not allowed me the satisfaction of complying with so kind and generous an offer." But seeing it is to my own loss and disadvantage only that I have declined so very honourable and beneficial a place, and that therefore I must be supposed to have acted thus from considerations of another nature, I know your lordship, lordship will judge from the true regard you have to conscience yourself that some straightening circumstances of this kind must have been, as indeed they were, the only remora, that prevented my being so happy as your lordship designed I should, and that therefore you will not be displeased for me for what was not my fault, but my misfortune. I am not made for flattery, and I know your lordship to be above it, and therefore I shall not say anything here by way even of just ecomium, because as your character is so public that it needs it not, so your modesty is so great that I know any attempt of this kind would be unwelcome and uneasy to you. I shall therefore only tell your Lordship that as I question not, but you have the good wishes of all honest men that you know, that know you, so I reckon myself peculiarly obliged to beg of God that you may long be preserved jointly to serve God and your Prince, the Church and your country, with the same unshaken constancy, unbiased fidelity, and unspotted reputation that you have hitherto been honored to do. Which, and that God may bless you and your honorable family, with all spiritual and temporal mercies here, and with eternal felicity and glory at last, is and shall be the earnest and constant prayer of my Lord, your Lordship's most obliged and most obedient servant, Robert Fleming. An Apostolary Discourse Concerning the Rise and Fall of Papacy To all my true and good friends everywhere, but more particularly to the worthy gentlemen and others that compose the church to which I am now related as minister. My dear friends, in compliance with the frequent and repeated desires of a great many of you, I suffer the following discourses to break loose from their fellows, to take their fortune, as we used to say, in the wide world. And seeing the candor of so many of my friends has made them think that they might not be unuseful, I must therefore expect that they will, from the same principle, defend this publication of them against the censures they may be supposed to fall under, both from open enemies and pretended friends. For though it be a common and, as it were, threadbare argument, to plead importunity in this case, Yet it is sufficiently known to several of you that if it had not been for this, the world had not been troubled with anything further of this kind from me. For as I am sure no affectation to be more known or taken notice of has influenced me to present these discourses to public view, so I do suppose it is not unknown to some of you that retirement from this noisy and vain world has ever been the sum of my ambition, excepting when public work and service have obliged me to shake off the beloved fetters of so dear a confinement. I shall not, therefore, say more as to the following essays than to tell you, what many of you know already, that, as the first of the discourses that follow this prefatory, one gave rise to the publishing of the second, so the second gave occasion to the printing of the third. And, therefore, seeing the late opportunity of preaching when we entered into our new meeting-place here in London, September 29, 1700, did induce some of you to desire the publication also of that sermon I preached when I entered upon the pastoral and ministerial work among you, June 19, 1698. The same occasion has given birth to the last additional discourse which some remember I made when I was solemnly set apart to the ministerial office, February 9, 1687-1688. to 1688 which I have the rather consented to print now, because it doth not only suit with the second discourse, but because I remember several false or at least imperfect copies were taken of it when I did at first deliver it. And seeing the last discourse, which yet was first as to time, doth now appear in the view of the world, I find myself in some sort obliged to interest all my friends in this prefatory address, wherein I do particularly include those of the English Church of Leiden and Scots Church in Rotterdam, to whom I stood related successively as minister or pastor, whom I do the rather mention here that I may let them know how much they are still upon my thoughts, though we are separated as to place. But seeing my work is now more particularly appropriated to you, who I am more immediately concerned with and related unto at present, I do therefore in a more special manner address myself to you at this time, and I hope you will bear with me, if from my sincere respect for your welfare I detain you a while here before you enter upon the perusal either of my apocalyptical thoughts following, or the other discourses, which I do present to you with at your own desire." For in case either of death or being otherwise rendered incapable to serve you, I am willing to give a vent to my thoughts and affections at this time, that whatever comes of me, the following discourses together with this may stand as a lasting witness of my real concern for your soul's welfare. In the first place, therefore, I do declare that though I am not willing to state my sufferings upon little matters or modes of worship and expression, Yet I can sincerely say that should the Divine Providence call me to lay down my life for the truths themselves which I have preached among you, I hope I should be so far from quarreling with the procedure of God this way that I should rejoice in such a martyrdom. And I hope I have not contradicted in my life what I have preached in the pulpit, whatever my infirmities have been. So I presume it will not be looked upon as pride or vanity if I say with the great Apostle, Though, as to the last clause, I dare not pretend to have been any pattern to you. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are venerable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do and the God of peace shall be with you. Philippians 4, verse 8 and 9 For in the second place I thank God that he that knows the secrets of all hearts doth testify together with my conscience that a sincere concern to be useful to our common Christianity was the thing that did at first influence me to enter upon this great work of the ministry, and hath ever since engaged me, though under more discouragements than most men, to continue and labor in it so that it is a matter so that it, it is matter of sweet reflection to me that i never gave any occasion to brand our holy profession with the odious name of priestcraft whatever any others may have done for as i have no other ambition than to engage and draw men over to the great and catholic interests of christianity itself in order to become the in order to their becoming the followers and servants of our glorious god and blessed savior So I am sure I can confidently say without any vanity or affectation for which I dare appeal, not only to you, but all others that have known me ever since I began to preach, that there is not one in the world that ever had just occasion so much as to think that I did at any time attempt to bring any person over to my way as a party. And as thus, I have been far from seeking either honor, interest, or popularity so there are not a few that can bear me witness that I have incurred the censures of some men of very different denominations because I could never be induced to think that religion did, stand, did properly stand in the rituals of any of the contending parties. The differences, therefore, but especially the animosities that are among the Protestant Christians have ever been grievous and afflictive to me and to heal these I could cheerfully be offered up a sacrifice, if I could be supposed to be conscious of the sentiments and movements of my own soul. For the we of this congregation differ from all others that descend from the Episcopal Communion in this, that we are in a peculiar sense upon a national foundation, that is, in as far as we not only own the same church government, but keep up the same way that the Church of Scotland useth in her public administrations, to which most of us belong as natives and all of us as proselytes, yet I must publicly own that, abstracting from this, I am a dissenter from that party that engross and monopolize the name of the Church of England. For though I have ever looked upon other controversies as more edifying and momentous than those unhappy ones that have kept that great body and ours divided, yet I have so far considered them as hitherto to find no reason to quit that way I was educated in, notwithstanding the specious reasons made use of to prejudice people against us as schismatics rather than to convince us that we are so. Therefore, in the third place, I cannot but own, without any design to reflect upon them that differ from me in such matters, that I look upon that way as nearest to the Christian institution that has the fewest and most natural and unaffected and consequently most spiritual rites and ceremonies in the performance of gospel ordinances. For as a learned conformist, that is, stilling, says, in a book, which he did afterwards indeed seem to differ from, but never attempted to retract or refute, and perhaps was never able so to do, quote, Certainly the primitive church that did not charge men with such a load of articles as now in these latter ages men are charged with would much less have burdened men with imposing doubtful practices upon them as the ground of church communion. There is nothing then that the primitive church deserves more imitation in by us than that admirable temper, moderation and condescension which was used in it towards all the members of it. It was never thought worth the while to make any standing laws for rites and customs that had no other origin but tradition, much less to suspend men from her communion for not observing them End of quote. and If this was the practice of the primitive church, it was eminently so in the apostolical age acts fifteen twenty eight and twenty nine to whom, as acted by the Holy Ghost. It seemed good to require nothing by way of imposition, but a very few necessary things. That is, the Christians should abstain from idols, blood, things strangled, and fornication. But alas, since that time it has seemed good to men, but I am sure not to the Holy Spirit, to impose a great many unnecessary things on the consciences of others, without any such allowance as was given them that every man should be fully persuaded in his own mind in what he did. Romans 14, verse 5 For what regard have some man to this apostolical rule when their impositions are laid as stumbling blocks in their brethren's way? Romans fourteen thirteen etc. Without any regard to the wounding of their weak consciences upon the supposition they are so. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 12 Is this to imitate the Apostle's tenderness, who resolved rather never to eat flesh than to offend any weak brother? 1 Corinthians 8.13 Or do men this way seek the things of Christ, or their own private ends and emoluments most? Philippians 2.21 Therefore let men dispute about forms and ceremonies, and their decency or necessity as long as they please, I must say with a reverend conforming minister that all the art and power of the world cannot make trifles in the worship of God seem matters of importance to them that relish, relish heaven. What trumpery are habits, various gestures and posture to a man that is swallowed up in the contemplation of the infinite majesty of the glorious God and that is lost in the ravishing admiration of his goodness and love or that is sunk into the lowest abasement and self-abhorrence for his sins. Such a soul may be loaded with human inventions, but he can never look upon them as ornaments or helps to devotion. End of quote. Whatever then be the various ideas and theories of what we call edification, yet still, as none can dispute us out of what we receive most advantage from as to our bodies, so neither to our souls. For if no man can be able to persuade me that his constitution of body is such a standard to mankind that I and all others are obliged to reckon that food most healthful for us which the imposer tells us is so to him though at the same time we experience it to be noxious or disagreeable to us I know no more reason why any man should pretend a power of imposing modes and forms on my conscience which I am dissatisfied with from no other reason but this, that they appear to be most excellent or decent to him. So that, as liberty is equally necessary in the one case as in the other, unless we value the health of our bodies above the peace of our consciences and security of our souls, so the contrary practice, when force is used, can admit of no softer term than that of anti-Christian tyranny, I cannot, therefore, but highly approve of what I find in a book I have already mentioned, that is, by stilling. What possible reason can be given, says the author, why such things should not be sufficient for communion with a church which are sufficient for salvation? And certainly those things are sufficient for that which are laid down as the necessary duties of Christianity by our Lord and Savior in his word. I mention these things, God is my witness, for no private design to uphold a party or to serve the ends of it as such, but to let those that are prejudiced against us know that we are acted by religion as a principle and not as a notion only, and that this is the reason of our descent from, there, from those that share the emoluments of the church among them. Otherwise it were not probable that we should unite in acting contrary to our own interest merely from faction or humor, if we may presume to know our own sentiments. And I hope most, if not all of us, durst not dissemble before the great God all our days in a matter of so great importance as this is. So that the dissenting of so many persons from the established church to their own hurt and disadvantage in the world may be looked upon as no contemptible argument by unbiased persons that there are some men that are acted by religion as a principle and that take up the ministry otherwise than as a trade but I had this further design in touching upon our unhappy differences that considering that that considering that they do only concern the externals and circumstantials of religion both ye and all others that peruse these lines and the following discourses may be taken off from that fury and bigotry by which so many seem to be possessed at this day, and may learn to mind the great essentials of Christianity more, acting conscientiously yourselves in all things, and judging charitably of those that differ from you, whether they do so of you or not. For what I have said on this head is not in the least designed to reflect upon those that differ from us, among whom I acknowledge there are many distinguishable, not only for parts and learning, but for piety and moderation also, upon which accounts I cannot but honour and love them, though they should both hate and despise me. Nay, I question not, but even many of the bigots for cathedral worship and its annexed hierarchy, who are running up these to as near conformity to Rome as they can, and yet stamp all with a confident pretending to a just divinum, may act from conscience even in their uncharitableness to them that conscientiously differ from them, yea, in their hatred of them and rage against them, where they have power. But then it must be remembered that as their zeal is not according to knowledge, so they are of the same tribe of those whom our Saviour speaks when he tells us that they would persecute, yea, kill his servants when they had opportunity, believing at the same time that they did God most acceptable service. But he immediately adds, And these things will they do, because they have not known the Father, nor me. John 16, verse 2 and 3. However, my design is not to reflect even on them, but rather to to pity them and wish them more knowledge and a better mind. For as a contentious and especially a persecuting temper was never from God, nor according to the rule of the meek and lowly Jesus, whose religion is first pure and then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, so such a disposition was never more unseasonable than at this time. For they must be unaccountably unobservant of and unconcerned with the present state and posture of affairs in Europe, who see not in what danger the Protestant interest is at present, considering what it has lost already, and is in hazard of losing further, together with the sad decay of true Christian piety, as well as unity among all sorts of persons. I could therefore wish we might learn a little prudence even from our popish adversaries, that we might unite in love, and in design to promote a general interest, though we attain not to an exact uniformity in all things. For why should we not join as one soul against that bloody and idolatrous party when we see them do so against us though their various sects and orders such as Franciscans and Dominicans Jesuits and Jansenists differ as much from one another both in their opinions and in their forms and habits as they are regimented under their several heads or generals and as they live according to vastly different laws and rules as we can possibly be supposed to do but alas what moral prognostications we now we have now but such as seem to portend ruin and misery to us when we see the differences of parties grow up into a stated hatred with a fixed design to ruin one another and consequently murder the reformed cause which we are obliged not only upon religious accounts to appear for but even upon civil considerations seeing popery is inconsistent with freedom and liberty then which nothing in this world ought to be so dear to us. Can we have forgotten what barbarities that inhuman party have committed in the world? For if we may believe historians, says a learned man, Pope Julius in seven years was the occasion of the slaughter of 200,000 Christians. The massacre in France cut off 100,000 in three months. P. Perionius aver, avers that in the persecution of the Albigenses and Waldensis, one million lost their lives. From the beginning of the Jesuits till 1580, that is, 30 or 40 years, 900,000 perished, saith Baldwinus. The Duke of Alva, by the hangman, put 36,000 to death. Virgirius, that is, the same Virgirius that attended on Francis Spira, affirms that the Inquisition in thirty years destroyed one hundred and fifty thousand. To all this I may add the Irish Rebellion, in which three hundred thousand were destroyed, as the Lord Orrery reports in a paper printed in the reign of Charles II. And how many have been destroyed in the later persecutions in France and Piedmont, in the Palatinate and Hungary, none I believe can fully reckon up besides those that are or have been in the galleys, and that have fled. This is that idolatrous harlot, so glutted with the blood of the saints, that a late author in his treatise of convocations, sets up as a pattern to the Church of England, and that another author, in his book entitled The Case of the Regale and Pontificate, to the scandal of the Church of England for whom they pretend such a zeal, would so fain have us united unto and represents therefore in such favorable colors. But I hope all true Protestants will easily see the snake in the grass, and surely when we are in hazard of being betrayed within ourselves, we have sufficient reason to awake out of our lethargic sleep that we may do what we possibly can to save the nations we belong to from approaching desolations, or if that cannot be, that we may at least save our own souls in the day of the Lord. For seeing, we are like to feel the effects of the new conjunction of France and Spain, the election of a young politic Pope, and the apostasy of some Protestant princes to the Romish interest, which together with the impiety and skepticism of a great many within ourselves, are, I am sure, no good prognostics. Have we not just reason to prepare for remarkable revolutions? While therefore I think of these things, I cannot forbear to give a vent to my thoughts on the great and dark head of futurity in presenting you with some conjectures in relation to our times founded upon scripture part prophecy as far as I understand it. Therefore, seeing this is the chief design of this discourse which I have inscribed to you, I hope you will bear with me in giving you some brief account of the times we are fallen in and what we may expect if we live much longer, which I am the rather induced to do, because we are just now entering upon a new age, from which we look back upon seventeen centuries, which have elapsed since our blessed Redeemer came into the world, and may therefore be allowed to conjecture, with some just ground perhaps of probability, for I do industriously avoid the fatal rock of positiveness, which so many apocalyptical men have suffered themselves to be split upon, what part of the revelation remains yet to be accomplished? But since I am con- am to confine myself to a little compass here, as remembering I am not I am writing no book properly, but an epistolary discourse prefatory to those that follow, with which therefore it must keep some proportion, I shall content myself in giving you a few hints towards the resolution and improvement of that grand apocalyptical question when the reign of anti-Christianism, or the papacy, began. There are two things, therefore, which lie before me to be considered at this time. First, I must fulfill my promise in giving you a new resolution of the grand apocalyptical question concerning the rise of the great Antichrist, or Rome papal. For when we have done this and fixed the era or epoch, we may, by an easy consequence, see the time of the final fall and destruction of this dreadful enemy. Two, I must in the next place improve the resolution of this question, both theoretically, as a key to unriddle the dark apocalyptical times and periods, and practically, in order both to the regulation of your thoughts and the government of your lives, in some very weighty considerations deducible from sense first the first thing therefore which I have to do is to attempt the resolution of the principal apocalyptical question concerning the rise of anti-Christianism now in order to answer this distinctly which hath exercised and wearied out all apocalyptical writers hitherto there are some things I would premise as so many postulata which generally all are agreed in and which Mr. Mead, Dr. Moore, Dr. Mr. Durham, and Dr. Cressner have in inre- proved first that the revelation contains the series of all the remarkable events and changes of the state of the Christian church to the end of the world, Revelation four: one, etc, and ten verse five through seven. Second, that mystical Babylon, or the great whore described there doth signify Rome in an anti-Christian church state Revelation 17, 1 8 Third, that therefore this cannot be Rome pagan properly but Rome papal Fourth, that the seven heads of the beast or the seven kings are the seven forms of government which obtained successively among the Romans Revelation 17, verse 10, 11 and seeing the sixth, Revelation 17, verse 10 and 11, of these, was that which was only in the being in John's time, the former five having fallen before, that therefore consequently the seventh head, which under another consideration is called the eighth, the intervenient kingdom of the Ostrogoths being the seventh in number, though not properly Roman, and therefore in that sense none of the heads of the Roman government, is the last species of government and that which is called most peculiarly and by a specialty the beast or antichrist. These postulate a being supposed as certain, which I would reckon no difficult thing to prove were it needful, I must in the next place premise two preliminary considerations before I come directly to answer the question itself. The first is this, that the three grand apocalyptical numbers of 1260 days, 42 months, and time, times and a half, are not only synchronical, but must be interpreted prophetically, so as years must be understood by days. That these three numbers are synchronical will appear plain to any impartial considerer that will be at pains to compare them, as we have set down in this book of the Revelation, that is, the 1260 days chapter 11, verse 3, and chapter 12, verse 6, the 42 months, chapter 11, verse 2, chapter 11, verse 5, and the time, times and a half, chapter 12, verse 14. For it is clear that the Gentiles treading down the holy city 42 months, in chapter 11, verse 2, is the cause of the witnesses prophesying for 1260 days in sackcloth, verse 3 and is the woman or churches being in the wilderness for the same term of days chapter 12 verse 6 any other than a new representation of the witnesses prophesying in sackcloth seeing this must be while the beast is worshiped and served by the whole roman world during men's lunacy of 42 months continuance revelation 13:5 and therefore seeing the woman is said to be in the wilderness state of desolation and persecution for a time and times and a half a time in order th- thus to be preserved from the beast and serpent as we see in chapter 12:14 it is likewise plain that this number of 3 years and a half must be the very same with the two former numbers only it is to be observed by the way that this period of time when it is mentioned in relation in relation to the church is spoken of with respect to the sun either as to his diurnal or annual rotation whereas when, it is con- whereas when it is described in relation to the beast's unstable kingdom of night and darkness it is made mention of with respect to the unconstant luminary which changes its face continually while it makes our months and hence it is that the church is represented 12 verse 1 under the emblem of a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet now as these numbers are synchronical and the same so it is easy to prove that they must be understood prophetically for years i shall not insist here upon the conjecture of a learned man that is wiston's theory of the earth page 879 and 81 that there was no diurnal rotation of the earth before the fall and consequently no days of 24 hours But only an annual rotation of this our planetary world Which he gives us as the original reason of the scriptures putting days for years frequently For whatever be in this it is plain that the scripture speaks thus in several places By putting a lesser number figuratively for a greater As well as a definite one for an, an indefinite Witness the appointment of the week of years Exodus 23 verse 10 and 11 which is spoken of as if it were a week of days, verse 12, the seventh year of which is therefore called sabbatical, with respect to the seventh day, Sabbath. In the same way of speaking, Ezekiel was commanded to lie 390 days on his left side and 40 on his right each day for a year, as God himself says, Ezekiel 4, verse 5 and 6. So likewise God punished the murmuring Israelites with forty years abode in the wilderness with relation to the forty days that were spent in searching of the land of Canaan. Numbers 14.34 The seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's lycanthropy is thus called indefinitely days or times. Daniel 4.32-34 Nay, our Savior himself speaks in this dialect When he calls the years of his ministry days Saying I do cures today and tomorrow And the third day I shall be perfected Luke 8 verse 32 But the most remarkable place to our purpose Is the famous prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks Or 490 days In chapter 9 verse 24 Reaching down from the edict of Artaxerxes Longamanus In his twentieth year Nehemiah 2 verse 1 to 10 to our Saviour's sufferings at Jerusalem, which was exactly 490 prophetical years, not Julian ones, the not distinguishing of which has hitherto confounded all interpreters, as I might show at large, were this a proper place for it. But what the difference between these is, we shall quickly see. In the meantime, I am now to prove that the 1260 days are to be understood in a prophetical sense, for years. For if I can prove this, it will necessarily follow that the other numbers must be so interpreted also, since they are the same with this. Now, that the 1260 days cannot be taken literally, but prophetically will appear from hence, that it is impossible to conceive how so many great and wonderful actions, which are prophesied to fall out in that short time, Could happen during the space of three solar years and a half Such as, for example The obtaining power over all kindreds, tongues and nations The worlds wandering at And submitting to the beast's reign And the setting up an image to the imperial head And causing it to be worshipped Instead of the living emperors, etc And besides these things seeing the 1260 days are the whole time of the papal authority, which is not to be totally destroyed until the great and remarkable appearance of Christ upon the pouring out of the seventh vial, and that therefore Christ will have the honor of destroying him finally himself, though this iniquity began to work even in the apostolical times, therefore we may certainly conclude that it must take up some centuries of years to carry on this abomination that maketh desolate, For though the Lord will gradually consume or waste this great adversary by the spirit of his mouth, yet he will not sooner abolish him than by the appearing of his own presence, Second Thessalonians 2.8, as I choose both to render and understand the words. Footnote. The learned Dr. Whitby, in his paraphrase and commentary upon the epistles, does indeed advance a new notion on this verse and chapter, that is, that the Jewish Sanhedrin, government and nation are primarily and chiefly understood here by the Apostle as the man of sin and antichrist both upon the account of their opposing themselves to Christ and persecuting of his followers and upon the account also of their rebelling against the Romans and he has said so much for the proof of this that it may be thought to contain a refutation of my interpretation of the place But even upon the supposition that all the doctor says for his opinion should be true, yet it will be found no way to invalidate what I advance here. For all that are acquainted with the Jewish and apostolical writings know that besides a first sense to be observed in prophecies, there is a second and remoter one, more tacitly insinuated frequently as the principal design of the Spirit of God. I might show this in innumerable instances, especially in the ancient prophecies that relate to David or some other person, in the first first sense, or typical one, but to the Messiah ultimately and completely. But I shall not insist upon anything of this kind now, seeing so many have done it already, okay. and there is no need to do it here, seeing Dr. Whitby himself doth grant all I desire, when he says in his preface to this epistle, page 383, quote, but that I may not wholly differ from my brethren in this matter, I grant these words may, in a secondary sense, in which expression I only differ from the doctor, seeing I look look upon it to be the principal sense, because it is the second, be attributed to the papal Antichrist, or man of sin, and may be signally fulfilled in him, in the destruction of him by the Spirit of Christ's mouth, he being the successor to the apostate Jewish church, to whom these characters agree, as well as to her, and therefore in the annotations I have still given a place to this interpretation also. End of quote. End of footnote. The second preliminary consideration is that in order to understand the prophetical years aright, we must reduce them to Julian years, or such as are in use with us now in Europe. This is n- this is no idle or chimerical inquiry Seeing the ignorance of this Has misled all our apocalyptical men Hitherto in their calculations And yet Unless we are able to adjust the difference Between prophetical and Julian years We must still reckon at a venture Without any certain certainty of truth And exactness of our arithmetic Therefore That we may understand this difference We are to remember that the ancients Were far more rude and indistinct in their calculation of time than we have been since and indeed such is their confusion in this way that we are obliged to God's providence in giving us the exact compass of a prophetical year even in this book by fixing the synchronism of the three numbers above mentioned for by these it is determined that 30 days make a month and 12 of such months a year so that 1260 days being divided into three years and a half, or time and times and a half in the apocalyptical dialect, 360 days must make up a year without the additional five days and odd hours and minutes that are added in the calculation of the Julian year for the Julian and Gregorian months consisting some of 30 and some of 31 days excepting February only and the years, consequently, of 365 days, there must needs be some considerable difference in the revolution of many centuries, which difference appears still greater if we consult the late curious astronomical calculations of of Patavius, Tycho, Kepler, and others. But since their exactness hath only added five hours to every year, together with some minutes, firsts, seconds, etc., communibus annis, which they themselves are not fully agreed in, I shall not be so nice upon this point as to follow them exactly in all their criticisms this way. However, since five hours additional to a year rise to an entire day in the revolution of 163 years, it ought not to be neglected altogether. But passing even these, And considering only the five days that are added to the 360 in our ordinary years, we will find that the 1260 days in the Revelation being reduced to years are 18 years short of Julian years in the prophetical reckoning by reason of the additional days turned into years in the ordinary accounts now above the apocalyptical reckoning. To demonstrate which, I present you with the following scheme. Here the author has a chart of the prophetical year and the Julian year. First, 360 plus 360 equals 2, 720. is 1080 plus 180. 3 years and a half equals 1260. The Julian year. One year 365 plus 365 equals 730. Two years, three years, 1,095. Half a year, 183. Three years and a half, 1,278. Now, if according to this computation we subtract subtract 1,260 apocalyptical years from 1278 Julian or Gregorian ones, I call them so, or Rotundo, overlooking the smaller measures of time, there remain 18 years to be cut off. To apply this, therefore, to our design, if we may suppose that Antichrist began his reign in the year 606, the additional 1260 years of his duration were they Julian or ordinary years would lead us down to the year 1866, as the last period of the seven-headed monster. But seeing they are prophetical years only, we must cast away eighteen years in order to bring them to the exact measure of time that the Spirit of God designs in this book, and thus the final period of papal usurpations, supposing that he did indeed rise in the year 606, must conclude with the year 1848. 1848. And now that I have hinted at the time of Antichrist's rise as the conclusion of the preliminary considerations, I must proceed to prove this to be, in one sense, the true era of the papal beast's reign. And here it is that I find myself extremely straitened in discoursing of so great a subject in so narrow a compass. All, therefore, that I can say here will amount to a few short hints only, though perhaps no inconsiderable ones. Seeing therefore as I have said before in the fourth postulatum it is plain from Revelation 17.10 that the imperial government was the regnant head of the Roman beast at the time of the vision we have only the two following heads to consider as to their rise and duration. Let these things therefore be minded here. First that the seventh head or king of Rome as I hinted before whose character is that he was immediately to succeed to the imperial government and to continue but a short space, Revelation 17.10, that that, I say, this government could be no other than that of the kingdom of the Ostrogoths in Italy. For it is plain that the imperial dignity was extinguished in Italy and in the western parts of the empire by Odoacer, the king of Heruli who forced Augustulus, the last sprig of an emperor, to abdicate his throne and power in the year 475 or 476, as others say. And though this Odoacer was soon destroyed by Theodoric, king of the Ostrogoths, yet the same form of regal government was continued by Theodoric and his successors. And though this kingdom continued for nearly eighty years, reckoning from Odoacer to Tiasus, yet the angel might justly call this a short time, for so it was, if compared either with the preceding imperial or succeeding papal government, which suggests a very strong argument against some who would make this seventh king to denote the Oriental Empire, which, as it began long before this time, so it lasted many centuries afterwards, and was not totally extinct till Mohammed the Great's time, in the year 1453, And surely this kingdom was sufficient to constitute a new head of the Roman people, seeing Rome and Italy were subjected entirely to those Gothish kings, and that they not only acted with the same authority that the emperors had used before, excepting that they abstained from that title by a special providence, providence, that they might not be confounded with that government, but, but were owned by the Senate and people of Rome as their superiors, yea, by the emperors of the East also, as might easily be proved from historians, particularly Cassiodorus, who was chief minister of state to two of those kings. Whence it does plainly appear that this kingdom of the Ostrogoths was the seventh head, that was to continue a short time, and that, therefore, it follows, first, that the change wrought by Constantine the Great, both as to the seat and religion of the empire, could not be looked upon as a new head, seeing the old government in all other respects was continued, and, second, neither can any person justly suppose that the form of government was altered when the empire was divided into the east and west, seeing in all other respects also the imperial authority and rule were preserved. Therefore, third, it follows also that the papal government was not regnant until the destruction of this gothish kingdom in Italy for there could not be two supreme heads of Rome at the same time therefore number two we may conclude that the last head of the beast which is the papal did arise either immediately upon the extirpation of the Gothic kingdom or some time after but it could not rise to its power immediately after seeing Justinian did by the conquest of Italy revive the imperial government again there which by that means was healed after the deadly wound which the Heriae and Goths had given it. Though I confess Justinian's conquests of Italy laid a foundation for the Pope's rise and paved the way for his advancement, both by the penal and sanguinary laws which he made against all those that dissented from the Romish Church, and by the confusions which followed upon Narses, his bringing in the Lombards, for during the struggles... Of them and the Exarch cat, the Pope played his game so that the Emperor Focus found it in his interest to engage him to his party by giving him the title of Supreme and Universal Bishop. Therefore we may justly reckon that the papal head took its first rise from the remarkable year six oh six when Focus in a, did in a manner devolve the government of the West upon him by giving him the title of universal bishop from which period, if we date the 1260 years, they lead us down, as I said already, to the year 1866, which is 1848, according to prophetical calculations. Or, if a bare title of this sort be not thought sufficient to constitute the Pope Head of the Beast, we may reckon this two years later, that is, from the year 608, when Boniface the Fourth did first publicly authorize idolatry, by dedicating the Pantheon to the worship of the Virgin Mary and all the saints. Now it is very remarkable that in the year 666, Pope Vitalian did first ordain that all public worship should be in Latin, and therefore, however, the notion of Irenaeus has been of late ridiculed, who observed that the characteristical number of the beast, that is 666, answering to the number of a man's name, was to be found in the word, Greek word, from whence he concluded that he was to be a Roman, I cannot but think there is something remarkable in this, even though the numerical letters of other words should jump with this number also, not so much because of the antiquity of the notion, as upon the account of the reason he suggests to us for this when he says that though he grants that other names as that of, Greek word, may be so rendered yet he fixes upon this because the Latin monarchy is the last of all and therefore the beast must relate to this or none footnote it ought to be observed here that not only the Greek word but even the Hebrew contains the number 666 in the numerical letters thereof whether we make use of Hebrew word Rometh skillsetis or Hebrew word Romanus Vlatinus, as will appear from the following scheme. The author here has a chart listed. And whereas Bellarmine objects that Latinus should be rendered by a single iota and not by EI, he is exceedingly mistaken for not only Irenaeus renders the word thus, but all the Greeks do the same, as is plain in innumerable instances, such as in the names, Greek word, Greek word, which the Romans pronounce Antonius, Savinus. Nay, the ancient Romans spake the same way as the Greeks, as is plain in Plotus and the fragments of Ennius, with whom nothing is more common than Quis, spelled Q-U-E-I-S, for Quis, spelled Q-U-I-S, Primus, P-R-E-I-M-U-S, For primus, P-R-I-M-U-S. Captivi, C-A-P-T-E-I-V-E-I. For Captivi, C-A-P-T-I-V-I. Latini, L-A-T-E-I-N-E-I. For L-A-T-I-N-I, Latini, etc. And a footnote wherein, I suppose, he alludes to Daniel's, chapter 2, verse 37, account of the four monarchies, and indeed the little horn that arose out of the head of the fourth beast, Daniel 7, verse 8, seems not unfitly to represent not only Antiochus' Epiphanes, but also the papal Antichrist, whose type he may therefore be supposed to be. For as he supplanted three kings, in allusion to which that little horn is said to have plucked up three horns by, before it by the roots, so did the papal government rise also upon the ruins of the Exarchant, the Lombards, and the authority of the emperors in Italy. I believe this account of Antichrist's rise will not be very acceptable to some whose zeal for the Pope's downfall has made them entertain hope of living to see that remarkable time, which has made them invent plausible schemes to prove that this great enemy was seated in his regal dignity long before the year 606. But if a man will trace truth impartially, he will have reason to think that the rise of this adversary could not be before that time. Nay, I must tell you that I do not reckon the full rise of the Pope to the headship of the Empire till a later date still, for though the Pope got the title of universal bishop at that time, yet he was afterwards for a long time subject in temporal concerns to the emperors. And therefore I cannot reckon him to have been, in a proper and full sense, head of Rome until he was so in a secular as well as in an ecclesiastical sense. And this was not until the days of Pipin, by whose consent he was made a secular prince and a great part of Italy given to him as Peter's patrimony. So that as Boniface Third and his successors, by assuming the title of universal bishop, was the forerunner of Antichrist, as Gregory the Great prophesied he would be, who should be known in the world by that proud title. So likewise we may conclude that Antichrist was indeed come when Paul I became a temporal prince also. Focus, therefore, did only proclaim the Pope to be the last head of Rome in the apocalyptical sense, but it was Pippin who gave him the solemn investure and seated him on his throne, which Charlemagne did afterwards confirm to him. Now, as near as I can trace the time of this donation of Pippin, it was in about the year 758, about the time that Pope Paul I began to build the Church of St. Peter and St. Paul. Now if we make this the era of the Papal Kingdom the 1260 years will not run out before the year 2018 according to the computation of Julian years but reducing these to prophetical ones the expiration of the Papal Kingdom ends exactly in the year 2000 according to our vulgar reckoning and if what I suggested above be true that Antichrist shall not be finally destroyed until the coming of Christ then may this calculation be looked upon to be very considerable. For it has been a very ancient opinion that the world would last only 6,000 years, that according to the old traditional prophecy of the house of Elias, the world should stand as many millenaries as it was made in days, and that therefore, as there were were 2,000 years from the creation to Abraham, without a written directory of religion, and 2,000 years from thence to Christ, under the old economy of the law, so there would be 2,000 years more under the Messiah, so that after the militant state of the Christian Church is run out in the year 2000, it is to enter upon that glorious sabbatical millinery when the saints shall reign on the earth in a peaceable manner for a thousand years more, after the expiration of which Satan shall be let loose, to play a new game and men shall begin to apostatize almost universally from the truth gathering themselves together under the character of Gog and Magog from the four corners or parts of the world until they have reduced the church to a small compass but when they have brought the saints to the last extremity Christ himself will appear in his glory and destroy his enemies with fire from heaven Revelation 20 verse 9 which denotes the great conflagration, Second Peter 3.10, etc., which is followed with the resurrection and Christ calling men before him into judgment. And perhaps the time of this judgment will take up the greatest part of the whole of another millenary years, that as there were four thousand years from the creation to his first coming, there may be four from thence to his triumphant entry into heaven with all his saints. For though the scriptures call this time a day, Yet we know what Peter says, that a thousand years and a day are the same thing in a divine reckoning. Second Peter 3, verse 8 That all men that ever lived should be publicly judged in a day, or year, or century, so as to have all their life and actions tried and searched into, is to me, I, con- I confess, inconceivable. Not indeed in relation to God, but in relation to men and angels, who must be convinced of the equity of the procedure and sentence of the judge. But, to return, I cannot forbear to take notice of one thing here, that the year 758 was the year 666, from the persecution of Domitian when John was in Patmos and wrote this book, as Tertullian, Irenaeus, Origen, Eusebius, Jerome, and all the ancients excepting Epiphanius tell us, which though some say was A.D. 95, was most probably in or about the year 92, the persecution of Domitian having begun two years before, so that here we have another characteristical mark of the number of the beast. And now I hope I have said enough of the future part of time as to the general idea which I think the revelation gives it, but I must proceed one step farther with you, and consider under what revolution of time we are at present, that we may sense see what we are to expect and how we are to act, so that here I find myself insensibly taken off from any further direct prosecution of the question proposed by way of answer thereto. And therefore, number two, I proceed to improve what I have said as to this question, both theoretically and practically. First, I shall advance something here as a theoretical improvement of what I have said upon the former head, for by this key we may attain in a great measure to unlock the dark apocalyptical periods and times, those I mean that relate to the continuance of the papal power, both as to his gradual growth and increase first, and his decay afterwards, until his last and final destruction. And in relation to these, the far greater part of the Apocalypse must be understood. Now, in order to this performance, I must premise this one thing, that is, that the seven seals, trumpets, and vials, in which are contained the order and series of the whole Apocalyptical prophecy, and to the explication and illustration of which all the other particular visions are subservient, that, I say, these are joined together by the link of the seventh seal and seventh trumpet. So as the seventh seal doth, as it were, produce or include the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet the seven vials in the same manner. This I should reckon no difficult thing to demonstrate, but that it would be too long to insist upon in this place. And seeing Mr. Durham has done it in a great measure already, I pass it now the more easily. Only let me desire you to consider that it was not until after the opening of the seventh seal that John saw the angels with the seven trumpets, Revelation 8, verse 1 and 2, and that it was after the sounding of the seventh trumpet also that he tells us he saw, Greek words, another sign, great and wonderful, Revelation 15, verse 1, which was the vision of the vials. So that I wonder that Mr. Mead, Dr. Moore, and almost all others have suffered themselves to be confounded in their interpretations by reason of their not observing this, and consequently by jumbling some of the trumpets with the seals and most of the vials with the trumpets. Now this being supposed, we will find the series of time run in the following order, according to this threefold septenary of periods, which do insensibly run out one into the other. The first septenary of seals relates to the Christian Church during the state of the Roman Empire, and these do accordingly run in this order. The first seal exhibits the state of the Church under the conduct of a glorious rider on a white horse, having a bow in his hand and a crown given unto him, who went out conquering and to conquer, Revelation 6, verse 2, under which emblem Christ himself is represented going forth upon the conco- upon his conquests over Jews and Gentiles. And as this relates to Christ's first victory over his enemies, after his commission to the disciples to preach the gospel to all nations, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, and the pouring down of his spirit for this end on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, so the full completion of it is not until the end of time. For after all other horsemen and enemies of the church have done their utmost against Christ and his people, we find this horseman leading them all in triumph as his captives, and proceeding in his conquest to make a full and final end of them. Revelation 19, verse 11 and 12, etc. So that this seal begins with the year 33 or 34, and does not end until the, year, to, until the end of time, as to its full completion but if we reckon it only in relation to the beginning of the next seal, Christ's conquest being darkened as to the outward view of men by what follows, we shall see that immediately. The second seal, Revelation 6 verse 3 and 4, under the emblem of a rider upon a red horse, who had a great sword given him in order to take peace from the earth and to engage men in wars, represents the state of the empire from that from the time that Nero made war on the Jews in the year 66, and so contains the civil wars of Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, when men did so remarkably kill one another. And the wars of Vespasian and Titus against the Jews, completed afterwards by the terrible destruction of that nation under Hadrian, together with his other wars and the preceding persecutions of Domitian and Trajan, and the conquest of this last prince. So that as this begins with the year 66, it ends with Hadrian's wars in the year 134, or with his life in the year 138. The third seal, Revelation 6, verse 5 and 6, begins therefore with the year 138, where under the hieroglyphic of a rider on a black horse, with a pair of balances in his hand to weigh and measure all things exactly, are set forth the excellent reigns of the admirable Antoninus, Pius, and Philosophus. And therefore, the seal, this seal runs out in the year 180. The fourth seal, Revelation 6, verse 7 and 8, represents the Roman horse turned pale, and the rider changed from a grave and awful judge to a murderer, so as to be called death by reason of his throwing so many into Hades or the future state, by immature deaths, where we have a very remarkable account of the state of the Roman Empire after the decease of the brave Antoninus Philosophus under the barbarities of Commodus the short-lived reigns of Pertinax and Didius Julianus but especially under the severe and bloody Septimius Severus in his wars against Persenius Nigerus Albinus and others and under his son Caracalla, and afterwards under Macrinus, Heliogabulus, the reign of the excellent Alexander Severus being but a short breathing to the empire and the Christians, Maximinus and his son Pupienus, Balbinus and Gordianus, and Philippus and his son, with whose death I think this seal runs out in the year 250, and with the death of these Philippi, who favoured Christianity the four evangelical living creatures, which our translation renders beasts most unaccountably, cease to speak openly. Please proceed to the next tape for a continuation of this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalogue, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780, by fax at area code 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog.